You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. These grace-saturated commands and what exactly we are to focus our minds upon in the good times, but also in our anxious moments. So we'll start in uh, verse 4 of chapter 4, but our focus today is going to be on verses 8 and 9. Read with me, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Lord, we come to you today. We come with open eyes, open ears for what you have for us. Lord, each one of us, anxiousness is not something that only one of us faces, but each one of us has different levels of anxiousness that we can face, different ways that we have uh, Uh, dealt with it, God, but your word has a plan, a battle plan for how we are to face these anxious moments. And I pray that it would be illuminated to us, that we would be able to understand what you have for us, so that when those anxious moments come, we may be able to deal with them in a godly way that glorifies you. We love you. We thank you. Be with us. Give me words to speak, not my words, your words. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was 12, I was preparing for my 13th birthday party. All my older siblings had 13th birthday parties. It was kind of like the Lindsay's coming-of-age party, if you will. I was handing out invite cards everywhere I went, whether it was at co-op or church. Give or take, 30 to 40 cards were handed out. It was a lot. The day the party came, I was excited, I was hopeful, ready for the evening. We had games to play, tons of food, snacks for everyone. But out of the 30 to 40 people that I invited, only one person showed up. Nobody else. That party was one of the worst days of my life. It kind of seems trivial to me today, and even thinking back on it, um, I still feel a little bit of the effects but because it did hurt me that only one person actually cared, or so I thought. Instead of focusing on how blessed I was that there was someone who cared for me, I could only focus my mind on the other 30 to 40 people that didn't care. It caused me to always have to be in control. I was depressed, I was anxious, I lost trust in people. If I wasn't in control, I was anxious. 
Even when I was in control, I was anxious about how I would be received, what people would think of me, anxious about if I did the task right, what my boss would say. I could tell you story after story about how I believed the lies that the enemy, uh, believed the lies of the enemy, and how I perceived someone caring for someone else more than they cared for me. And needless to say, extending grace to people was never at the forefront of my mind. But I was still hungry, hungry for someone to help me, someone to teach me, someone to love me and pour themselves into me that I could learn lessons from that would help me be free of sin, but also be able to trust people again. Your story might not be like mine. We each likely have stories of hurts or offenses and sin that we could wallow in, or we can focus our minds on right things, to things that glorify God. Things that give us, as scripture says, true peace, peace that passes all understanding. In verses four through seven, Paul's grace-saturated commands encourage the believers to always rejoice, always be reasonable, to not be anxious about anything, to pray about everything with thanksgiving, which will lead to the peace of God that passes all understanding and will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. So again, our question, what is God's great battle plan for our anxious minds and hearts? We're going to unpack what Paul is giving to the Philippians to combat anxiety, and I find it more than relevant for us today. So jumping in, point number one is we must fix our minds and hearts upon the character and mind of Christ. Found in verse 8, says, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's pretty self-explanatory, right? Think about these things. But how do these things relate to the character and mind of Christ and then in turn relate to us? Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the times in today's age, we tend to hear from these verses is usually to just think positively, right? Just think positive. Turn it around. Stop focusing on the negatives and focus on the positives. And in a way, it can be true. We do need to fix our minds on positive and good things to not be the ones always pointing out the black dot on the white wall, as I heard Pastor Phil say a couple months ago. That is to say, everything around us is beautiful and great, but we're always pointing out the one bad thing that's there. And in our anxiety, our, we fix our minds on wrong things. Positivity, like everything else in our sin-stained world, can be twisted to where we're thinking positively but we're still thinking on the wrong things. So when I say we must think positively, I'm not talking about the positivity that's found in the positivity movement or the self-help movement. It takes many forms. One such way is body positivity. It can be healthy, but generally it is unhealthy. When they're encouraging someone who struggles with food or is even gluttonous, 
to be who they are and not to let anyone say differently, it's unhealthy. When body positivity becomes focused on our vanity, other than being content with who we are and how we look, we're thinking about the wrong things. My wife used to get messages on Facebook. They would read, Good morning. Take a moment to appreciate how awesome you are. Anyone ever got one of those kind of messages? Another message would read, Hope your day goes as amazing as you are. And another, The world is full of beautiful things like you. These messages first appear harmless, but for my wife, they kind of rang hollow. You see, she didn't have a close relationship with this person. The person just wanted to speak positive things over my wife's life. But notice the messages. Did you catch the danger? They were all about self. Focusing my, my wife's mind on herself tore inward. Fixing her mind on how amazing, awesome, and beautiful she was. And there really is danger there. And I know I said this before, but I will say it again, and I will keep saying it. My wife is amazing, beautiful, and awesome. But she is a sinner just like the rest of us. And the danger of encouraging someone to look inward toward themselves is ultimately they will fail. They will be disappointed, and they will feel shame. Next time you get a positive message from someone, ask this question. Where is this message pointed? Inward, outward, or upward? Where is the positive thinking focused? Because selfishness and pride are in this movement, and they conceal themselves as something that is good, healthy, and right ways to think. But Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The world looks at their sinful self for positivity, but the Christian fixes their mind and heart on Christ, who informs how we are to think, how we are to view ourselves, and how we are to act. Or how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. Even in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to not be anxious. And in that teaching, he wants us to notice the beauty in our world. He teaches us to recognize what is out of our control and to trust the one who is. So real quick, keep your finger on Philippians, and let's quickly look over at Matthew 6 and Jesus' teaching on anxiety. As we hear from Jesus... Notice where he is directing his listeners to, where their thoughts should be focused. And may that be where our hearts and minds dwell. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So I ask you, what is your mind focused on? O you of little faith. And I ask that of you as much as I ask that of myself. Are your thoughts focused on what you'll eat or drink or what you'll wear or on things you can't control? Or is your mind focused on the one who is in control and his care for the birds and the beauty of the lilies and seeking first, which is key, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What is your mind focused on? So let's look, go back to Philippians, and let's look back at each of these virtues that Paul is directing the church's attention to. Each one points to the mind of Christ, and each one has real-world application, which the hope is that it will encourage you in your anxious moments. Starting off with whatever is true. In Philippians 4.2, Paul urges Yodia and Sintuche to live in harmony in the Lord. Some kind of relational strife was happening between these two that was causing division, anxiety, and other things within the church. There was strife going on outside the church, and there was strife within the church, which was all adding to the anxiousness of the believers. And isn't that kind of true of us sometimes? Unfortunately, many times we allow the lies of the enemy to inform our thinking where we can be prone to sizing one another up. We can tend to believe lies if it strengthens our feelings. But in verse 2, Paul is calling the church to help these women to discern the lies and work toward the mind of Christ and think on what is true. When we're in strained relationships like these two women, when walking through trials and suffering, whether it's from our own doing in sin or in the Lord's providence guiding us through trials and suffering, we must focus on the truth of who God is and who we are in Him. When you desire to have a child but are unable to, when a spouse is providing for your family but has to work on Sundays and you continue to attend church faithfully, when someone we love is wayward, when work is overbearing or stressful, or we're desiring a new job or position and we're waiting on the right doors to be opened, when we moved out from our family's home and learning how to bear all sorts of responsibilities, 
when waiting on the Lord to provide a spouse, when health is declining, when you're questioning if all this is true, is Christ real? Does his death really matter? We must focus on the truth of who God is and who we are in him. You may be asking, how does this all affect my anxiety? A lot of times, it can be our lack of trust in the Lord that can cause anxiety. Other times, the Lord allows us to go through seasons that stretch us, which can also cause anxiety. When we're having to learn to trust in the Lord. Church, I've been there. Those moments when we can be tempted to take Christ off the throne of our hearts, so to speak, and without words, we're declaring, I'm God. I know what's best. I can do this. But isn't the Lord so patient with us? So patient. In these moments, he is still teaching us. Teaching us that we are not God. We cannot rely upon our own strength. There are things that are out of our control. And in a humble and repentant heart, we must declare, you, O Lord, are God. And we need you. To which we remember his promise that if we cast our cares upon the Lord, he will care for us. You can't add a single day to your life, so why worry? You can't change the hair on your head, so hold fast to the truth that he cares for you. For Paul declares in Romans, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So, trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs declares. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. One way the Lord has given us to fight against anxiousness and to find peace the truth is we must learn to trust him in every season of life. As Pastor Phil shared last week from Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. That's truth. Next is honorable. Honorable means impressing awe or inspiring reverence. Jesus didn't commit your sin or my sin. We did. He didn't deserve the punishment that for our disobedience, we did. So this should inspire awe in us to see our Savior hanging on that cross because of our sin. And we should revere our Savior because of what he did for us. And everything he did, it was honorable. Whatever's just, Many times when we're sinned against, it is an injustice. How easy it is for us to get our minds stuck on the injustice to which we're called to forgive because we have been forgiven. Other times we perceive an injustice when in fact it is just. We believe the whispering lies of the enemy and skew what is in fact right. If you can remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, Jesus told in Matthew 20. To sum it up, the owner of the vineyard goes out in the morning to the market and hires some people. They agree on their wages and they go to work. 
At the third, sixth, and eleventh hour, he goes back out into the market and hires more people. The owner had in his mind what he would pay them, and they went to work. But listen to the end of this parable and notice how the workers perceived what happens. Starting in verse 8, it says, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. You made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to one of them and said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a Daenerys? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what is I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. The men perceived an injustice because of how the owner chose to deal out what was his. It wasn't an injustice, but instead of focusing on the good thing, like a paycheck, they chose to focus on how they didn't receive more. More. And the owner made all the workers equal. Justice, in our mind, can tend toward benefiting ourselves. But God is the judge and decides what justice truly is. And the justice of God is found in his word. And here it declares that we are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God, equally deserving of hell. And God tells us to humble ourselves before the Lord and we will be forgiven. To treat others the way we want to be treated and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul tells them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Friends, there is a day when all will be made right. The injustices of the world will be done away with, and the perfect righteousness of God will be revealed. And Paul reminds the Philippians, in chapter 2, 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So think rightly, think justly. Whatever is pure, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But what is purity? A quick search, and I came across this. According to one website, purity is freedom from anything that contaminates. Purity is the quality of being faultless, uncompromised, or unadulterated. Pure water is free from any other substances. 
Pure gold has been refined to such a degree that all dross has been removed. And a pure life is one in which sin no longer determines the choices one makes. Purity should govern our thoughts, our words, and our actions. In Philippians 1, there's a passage we read when looking at truth. In the passage we read when looking at truth, Paul continues in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. James 1.27, a familiar verse to many of us, says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Keep oneself unstained from the world. It's not something we can do on our own. Jesus himself took our impurity upon himself and gave us his purity, which is really a beautiful thing to think about. Now, we're about halfway through these virtues, but I hope you're kind of starting to see a pattern start to develop here. What is true is going to be honorable. What is honorable is going to be just, and what is, going, and what is just is going to be pure. And what is pure is going to be lovely. Ultimately, the most lovely thing we can set our mind on is Christ himself. Throughout the letter to the Philippians, Paul encourages the believers to have the mind of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3.15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul encourages Yodia and Sintuche to agree in the Lord. Or as another translation says, to be of the same mind. So what is this mind? the mind of Christ. So this isn't a loveliness about his outward appearance. Isaiah tells us he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Although I can almost guarantee the moment we see him in person, face to face, we're going to see the most beautiful thing we've ever witnessed. This beauty that I'm talking about is the beauty of his character. Look at Philippians 2 for a moment. Starting in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Church. Be a servant like Christ. 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Church, may we humble ourselves like our Savior by becoming obedient. Lord, help us to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May we think on how lovely our Savior is. May we think on the beauty of his life, of servanthood, his humility, his obedience, and ultimately his sacrifice. And as we ponder upon how lovely our Savior is and strive to have the mind of Christ, we are assured of his relationship and love for us. And how Paul was encouraging the church in Philippi to be of the same mind, it will inform our relationship with one another. Moving on to whatever is commendable or good repute or good report. This means which, to focus our minds on the conduct that is spoken of highly by others, as one commentator says. And to summarize all these virtues, Paul declares and then commands, whatever is excellent and worthy of praise, think about these things. Ultimately, who is the one who is worthy of praise? It's Jesus. These virtues are summarized for us in these final two statements. What the believer is to think upon continually are things that are of excellence and worthy of praise. These virtues are part of what it means to have the character and mind of Christ. And while we must strive to think rightly, we must also strive not to think negatively. And the only way to do that is to follow Christ's example and his character, and to learn from those that have gone before us, which leads to point number two. Follow the Christ-like example of Christ's people. Found in verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Paul is telling the Philippians to watch and learn from him the Philippians saw Paul in person. They saw with their own eyes this man's character and watched him teach others, including themselves, how he handled trials. And here he's reminding them of all the moments they had with him and telling them to practice what they saw, learned, heard, and received from him. In Paul's other letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 Paul writes, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's the same lesson, but to a different group. But notice in the Corinthian passage, Christ is the aim. 
Not to be like Paul for Paul's sake, but to be like Christ. The background of this book of Philippians, as most of you, if not all of you, know, is Paul wasn't writing this letter from his penthouse or mansion. He wasn't writing this from his nice suburban home outside of Philippi. He was in jail. And from jail, he is encouraging the believers to cultivate contentment. Seen in chapter 4, he's showing them how, through all that he went through and is currently going through, how they too could do all things through Christ who gives them strength. When it comes to anxiety outside and within the church, Paul taught a great deal of things throughout the book to the Philippians. A quick rundown of some of the things Paul taught. In chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul taught them to be thankful, so key, and to let their conduct be worthy of the gospel. In chapter 2, he tells them not to do things from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind to esteem others better than themselves. He showed them how to be spent or how to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. In chapter 3, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord, to count all they've learned and had been taught prior to salvation as loss for the sake of Christ. And in verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul observes those who do not have the mind of Christ as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he starts this contrast in verse 17 saying, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Even when Paul faced all the persecutions, the trials, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, the stoning, he still had joy. It brought him joy to think of the believers in Philippi. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, in verse 3 of chapter 1, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. In the book of James, it says to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the overarching theme throughout this book is to suffer well. Are you in jail? Be joyful. Being persecuted? Be at peace. Facing sickness? Be content. Going back to chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. Be content. And dare I say, Be thankful. In every situation you find yourself in. Today, we can learn the lessons the Philippians learned by reading this letter. But we also have those among us who we can learn from. Those who go through illness or loss and suffer well. 
those who come and worship with the saints, who are facing trials and suffering well. Those who, by the grace of God, have joy even in their trials. Learn from those who suffer well and imitate their way of life. One way we learn how to follow Christ is by watching those who follow Christ. And the final point, what is God's great battle plan for our anxious minds and hearts? That we would find the peace of God in Christ himself. Found in the last part of verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. This last statement brings our attention back to verse 7, which says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, this is where all the answers to life are found, in Christ. The God of peace and the peace of God cannot accompany you if you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus. Jesus, the great shepherd, the living water, the door to salvation, the one who came as a baby in the midst of a perverse and wayward people, declaring that he must suffer a great many things, the weightiest of them all, the wrath of God that was reserved for us. Our wicked and perverse hearts that love darkness rather than light deserved hell. But God, by the grace of God, looked down upon our state, came down in the form of man and took our punishment upon himself. That, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. And that is our only way to peace in the midst of anxiety. So when we're going through anxious moments, you can be assured, no matter your age, you will have anxious moments. But may we ponder upon our great Savior, the goodness of our God, and remember to focus our hearts and minds on that which is excellent and worthy of praise. So if you're feeling anxious today, I would first ask, have you repented of sin? And do you believe that Jesus is Lord? If the answer to that is yes, then my encouragement to you is to think on these things. When things are going poorly and you feel the anxiety coming on, find the good, pure, lovely, and praiseworthy things and focus on them. If your answer is no to believing in the Lord Jesus, I encourage you in the Lord, repent and believe. So you too can be saved. And so the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray.